and thank you for listening to the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. This unedited audio is taken from Mormonism and Eugenics, an experiment in racial and religious purity by Bryce Blankenagel. It was first broadcast live on the 9th of July, 2020. A video recording of this and many other talks hosted by Skeptics in the Pub online is still available on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this podcast and thank you for your support. Thank you so much, Andrew, and uh, thanks to everybody here at Skeptics in the Pub for hosting this event and, and coming to attend this evening, or if you are in the stateside, uh, this morning, drinking coffee. <laughs> so my presentation today is going to be Mormonism and Eugenics, titled An Experiment in Religious Purity. Now, I know there's a lot of buzzwords, and that's a really you know, salacious kind of title, but please allow me to make my case. And of course, I'm, you know, an open book once we get into the Q&A. So as Andrew said, I am a Mormon historian. Uh, I, I try to call myself a Mormon history communicator because I try and take the dense field that is Mormon history academia and communicate that to lay audiences and in the process, hopefully make it interesting. And sometimes current events uh, kind of do my job for me. And all that I have to do is just read a few scripture passages and then show some pictures of white dudes that run the church. And I make Mormon history fun that way. So what do you say? Why don't we just go ahead and jump right in? Let's start with an overview. We're going to start with a brief history of Mormonism with a quick timeline. And then we're going to go into Mormonism's first major European mission led by a member of the church, Brigham Young, and how that mission in 1839 – uh, and the resulting converts from that mission influenced American history when those converts followed 12 apostles to Utah and built a Mormon theocracy following a schism crisis after Joseph Smith was assassinated in a gunfight. Then we're going to explore some population statistics all the way up to modernity as evidence of a massive eugenics experiment in what became the state of Utah, my home state. I'm so white and delightsome. <laughs> I say why and delight some because we'll be getting into it. So first, let's go ahead and set the scene. Mormonism, uh, or it's known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I'm going to be using the term Mormonism today. Mormonism is considered a fringe religion by global standards. They have about 7 million active members, roughly. The guy who started it, Joseph Smith, on the left of your, your screen right now, was born in uh, on December 23rd, 1805 in Vermont, and his family moved to New York in his early teens, and he took up some occult practices of using a magic rock, which he would put into his hat and bury his face in the hat to hunt for buried treasure left by Spanish conquistadors or um, Native Americans or who knows. Uh, there, there's just buried treasure. He was looking for it. It's all wrapped up into this kind of occult traditions. Um Joseph Smith was also a vicious racist, and he liked to get in drunken fights with his neighbors pretty often. Uh, he eventually claimed to have unearthed a book of gold plates written by Native American Jews, which was supposedly he translated, air quotes, translated into the Book of Mormon. So please allow me to repeat the premise of the Book of Mormon. According to Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon comes from a book of plates made from gold which was written by Christian Native Americans who sailed to America in 2500 BCE and 590 BCE and settled on the American continents. 
The writings were made by prophet historians who, for some reason, wrote this Christian history on the gold plates in Reformed Egyptian. So why did the Israelite Christian Native Americans in America write in Reformed Egyptian, a language which isn't real, seven centuries before Christianity was even a thing? Go fuck yourself, that's why. (laughs) The Book of Mormon contains passage after passage of white supremacist and racially charged words of God. And on this slide, 13 of those scripture passages are presented on the left side of it. And on the right side of it, you can see a passage that comes from 2 Nephi chapter 5, verse 21, which is the go-to Book of Mormon white supremacy passages that people cite all of the time. But all of the chapters and, and verses that you see on the left side of your screen, all of those are from books that are in the Book of Mormon, and all of them contain white supremacy and racial elements. I'm going to read uh, the Second Nephi 5, 21 through 23, because that's a really operative passage from the Book of Mormon that we're going to be talking about quite a bit today. Uh, beginning, and he, meaning God, had caused the cursing, the cursing, okay, to come upon them, yea, even a sore cursing because of their iniquity. They're cursed because of their sin. For behold, they had hardened their hearts against the Lord, uh, that they had become like unto a flint. Wherefore, as they were white and exceedingly fair and delightsome, that they might not be enticing unto my people, the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them. God cursed them with a skin of blackness so that they might not be enticing unto the righteous, white, fair and delightsome people of the Lord. Continuing. And thus saith the Lord, I will cause that they shall be loathsome unto my people, save they shall repent of their iniquities. And cursed shall be the seed of him that mixeth with their seed, for they shall be cursed even with the same cursing. And the Lord spake it, and it was done. So Mormon God is super against miscegenation as well. And there are at least you know, 13 overtly white supremacist passages like this in the Book of Mormon, only one of which has ever been edited. Second Nephi chapter 30 used to read in the first edition of the Book of Mormon that the blessed, the chosen people of the Lord, the Nephites, were white and delightsome, which was changed to fair and delightsome. It was originally changed by the author of the book, Joseph Smith, in the 1840 edition, just 10 years after the first edition of the Book of Mormon, to read fair instead of white and delightsome, proving that even the racist dude who wrote the book originally was like, I need to tone this back from what I wrote in my 20s. So Mormonism finally began with the Book of Mormon in hand after it was completed printing on April 6th, 1830 in the state of New York. Now, this is on your screen one of the possible locations for the very first meeting of the Church of Christ that became the Church of the Latter-day Saints, that became the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We just call it Mormonism. And you're going to see a number of pictures actually throughout this presentation, which show restorations and reproductions of these original buildings where these events all transpired. Uh, And yeah, if you look at the slide, you see, I I know I'm American and I use the non-American dating convention. A good communicator knows their audience. So Joseph Smith in New York had a super bad reputation and he was finally chased out of the state by angry mobs. And most of those angry mobs were actually his past business partners who wanted a piece of the gold plates pie. 
but he wasn't going to give it up because he wrote the Book of Mormon from it. So this led to the first mass exodus in Mormon history. So Joseph Smith resettled himself and the very small group of proto-Mormons in Kirtland, Ohio in early 1831. This is the home that you see on your slide here that the Mormons built for Joseph Smith and his wife, Emma, because God commanded the Mormons to build the home for him. During this time, Joseph Smith met a new friend by the name of Sidney Rigdon, a theologian, a successful preacher, and also a super, super racist guy. Um, conversion of uh, Sidney Rigdon's congregations actually gave Joseph Smith's church a much-needed membership injection for it to begin to reach the critical mass of a religion surviving. Prior to Rigdon's congregations converting to Mormonism, there were about 50 to 60 people who were members of the church. Once they converted, there were over 200. So an early project for Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon, once they teamed up, was to write new scripture. Um, and by the time Joseph Smith died in 1844, the Mormons actually had four separate books of scripture. The final, The Pearl of Great Price, which you see in, at the bottom of the screen here, that wasn't canonized and declared to be scripture until more than 40 years after Joseph Smith. But it's, it's a compilation of a number of books of revelation that he gave during his lifetime. So let's crack open that fourth book, The Pearl of Great Price, and let's see what other gems we can find. The Book of Mormon, uh, from the passage that we read earlier from 2 Nephi 5.21, that established the curse of Cain as being a skin of blackness, that the cursed people shall be loathsome unto thy people, the chosen white and delightsome people, right? Well, the Book of Moses is another book that is included in the Pearl of Great Price, and it essentially reiterates this curse that was written in 1832 when Joseph and Sidney Rigdon teamed up together. Uh, the book of Moses, chapter seven, verse 22, quote, for the seed of Cain were black and had not place among them, the chosen people. Then we also have the book of Abraham, which is another book that was written by Joseph Smith. And uh, it was published in 1842. And not only did it capture that the curse is the skin of blackness, but it established the penalty for having the curse. So the curse is just what the, the, the appearance so that people can delineate who has the curse. The penalty for the curse comes from the book of Abraham. It says, now this king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, was a descendant from the loins of Ham and was a partaker of the blood of the Canaanites by birth. He was born African, right? From this descent sprang all the Egyptians and thus the blood of the Canaanites was preserved in the land. Pharaoh, being a righteous man, established his kingdom and judged his people wisely and justly all his days. Noah, his father, who blessed him with the blessings of the earth and with the blessings of wisdom, but cursed him as pertaining to the priesthood. There it is. That is the penalty for the curse, cursing him as pertaining to the priesthood. This established the scriptural doctrine for what was known as the priesthood ban, meaning that if any person has African blood, they can't hold the priesthood in Mormonism. But what does that mean? Well, the priesthood in Mormonism is basically a key to unlock stuff. Oh, uh, sorry. Sorry about that. This is a this is a family friendly presentation. My mistake. So priesthood in Mormonism is a gift. It's like being given a key to the city. It doesn't simply mean that you work for the church. It's a possession that is granted to you by the church leadership 
that you need to have in order to be able to do anything meaningful in the church. So if you want to pass a sacrament at age 12, you have to have the priesthood. If you want to baptize people, you got to have those priesthood keys. If you want to go to Mormon heaven after doing temple ordinances, you have to have the priesthood. Priesthood is basically the keys that, to the kingdom that only the men can get. Now, the doctrine that was established in the Books of Mormon, Book of Moses, and Book of Abraham meant that anybody of African descent can't have the priesthood, meaning they can't go to Mormon heaven. Until 1978, only men not of African descent could have the priesthood. Today, all men get the priesthood. Men, men only get the priesthood. But at least there isn't the racial discrimination in it. Uh, there's there's like a lot more to the priesthood and the priesthood ban and stuff like that. Um, I'm trying to keep stuff simple here. So maybe we can talk about that more in the Q&A section uh, if, if anybody has any more questions. So continuing on, early Mormon history. In 1832, this guy, Brigham Young, joined the Mormons in Kirtland, Ohio. Now, Brigham Young was the kind of guy who could take any ledger book and he could trim the fat and he could turn all of the red lines into black lines, right? Joseph Smith took notice of Brigham Young's business skills and Brigham Young became a member of the Quorum of Apostles when it was organized in 1835. Now, the apostles are, as their name suggests, basically the governing body that operates just underneath the prophet and presidency of Mormonism. If you think about it like a pyramid, I, I just, I, you know, I'm arbitrary shape. I'm just pulling off the top of my head. Think of it like a pyramid. The prophet and presidency sits on the top. The apostles are the very next layer underneath the, the cap of that pyramid. Uh, so Brigham Young was also a vicious and eventually a violent white supremacist. All right. So I'm going to ask you to put a pin in Brigham Young and racism and priesthood here uh, for just a few minutes, because that's going to become super important later on in the presentation. Mormonism continued to grow during this the, this era of the 1830s. Joseph Smith eventually bankrupted the Mormons by building the Kirtland Temple that you see on your screen right now and running the religion on basically nothing other than credit. Uh, so in order to answer all of these debts that were amounting to... $1.2 million in 2020 money, uh, all assumed by himself, $1.2 million or like, I don't know, like 9 billion post-Brexit pounds if my conversion is right. I'm not, I'm, I may have that a little bit wrong, but anyway, so with $1.2 million in debt, Joseph Smith created the Kirtland Safety Society and just began to print his own money. <laughs> If you don't have money, then you just print some. That's how you solve the problem. Well, this speculation ran the Mormons even further into debt, obviously. And then, to make matters worse, an economic depression known as the Panic of 1837 happened in America. And decreased imports and exports also affected other Western countries. So middle and lower class Europeans working in manufacturing and farming they began to also feel the pinch of this uh, economic depression in America. So that essentially set the stage for a Mormon proselytizing campaign to Europe because the people in Europe were receptive to hollow promises of American prosperity. So the Mormons in Ohio, of course, blamed Joseph Smith for all of their financial losses with this Kernel Safety Society and with this big temple that they built. And that's blame that he rightfully bore. 
So they formed their own faction of the church there. They excommunicated Joseph Smith and they chased him out of Ohio to Missouri with torches and pitchforks in hand. And at this time, newspapers nationwide began taking notice of the Mormons and their unpredictable charismatic leader. So Joe fled to Missouri, where there was a satellite location of the church. And that be- that happened in 1838. He and the remaining loyal Mormons, at least the Mormons who were loyal to Joseph Smith, they spent the year of 1838 in Missouri. But the year was fraught with conflict. The 1838 Mormon War in Missouri climaxed in a massacre of Mormons and the surrenders of the Twin Cities of Mormonism, as well as the arrests of Joseph Smith and dozens of other high-ranking Mormon elites. Fun fact, in Mormon theology, Missouri is where the Garden of Eden actually was, and Missouri is going to be the epicenter where Jesus is going to return during the second coming. Um, Because, of course, (laughs) we can get into it in the Q&A if you want. Um, So this guy was governor of Missouri at the time. His name is Lilburn W. Boggs. So Lilburn Boggs responded to Mormon aggression during this war by signing Executive Order Number 44, which is known as the Mormon Extermination Order. You can see a copy of it here on your screen. And that basically granted Missouri militias legal power to remove every Mormon from the state of Missouri, which they did. Joseph Smith was locked away in Liberty Jail, and he eventually bribed his way out of prison with whiskey and money. In spring of 1839, and he joined the makeshift Mormon settlement across the state line in Illinois. And that's where the Mormons fled, was to nearby Illinois. And they began to settle as religious and political refugees. Uh, We, I I mean, like, we can't really talk more about the details of the 1838 Mormon War uh, in Missouri and all the resettlement. Uh, We can discuss that in the Q&A if, you know, if I'm moving too quickly or if you want to know more about it. But Novel Illinois is where Mormonism goes completely off the rails, a theocratic movement. Mormons had a really complicated reputation. On one hand, they were cult leaders beholden to Joseph Smith and to no other authority. Uh, But on the other hand, Mormons were a persecuted religious sect driven repeatedly across state lines. That was the view in America. However, Mormonism was largely unheard of In Europe, when you get a bad enough reputation, you just tap into new markets, right? So Joseph Smith decided to shift uh, church resources to a Mormon missionary campaign in Europe. So he sent nine of his Quorum of Twelve Apostles on a two-year-long mission beginning in Liverpool in the summer of 1839. That guy in the center of your screen, that's good old Brigham Young. His business skills came in handy during this mission. He set up a Mormon satellite location in England and began converting people by the thousands with false promises of American prosperity during a, you know, a Western nation's uh, economic collapse. Brigham Young also established an immigration fund from England to the Mormon kingdom in Nauvoo. So that meant that any convert to the church in in uh, near Liverpool, if they could get themselves to Liverpool, they could board board on a chartered ship from Liverpool to America for a one time fee of four pounds. Even the most destitute of families could usually scrounge up four pounds to get them to America. 
the empty promises of American prosperity. It was a very welcome message to those thousands of destitute European converts, and they began flocking to the beautiful Mormon city of Nauvoo. Now, that slump that we see in this graph, that, that graph shows the, the perpetual immigration fund that brought Europeans over to America. That slump from 1844 to 47, we're going to explain that uh, in just a few more slides here. But as we can see, the mission trip to Europe was incredibly successful for the burgeoning religion. Joseph Smith's religious aspirations at this time in Nauvoo waxed very political as his theocracy began to flourish. He established his own government called the Council of 50 that had its own constitution. Joseph Smith also petitioned the Federal Congress for a massive militia of 100,000 volunteers to scourge across the remainder of America and uh, try and basically take and annex all of the remaining land west of the Mississippi and expand the American government. He also you know, looked for new possible Mormon settlement locations in Texas, in Oregon, in California, in Canada, in Mexico. Joseph Smith also ran for president of the United States, a campaign that was doomed before it started. So by way of overview of Joseph Smith's timeline in this, by mid-1844, Joseph Smith had complete and total control of the Mormon settlement in Nauvoo. He had his own city militia that was larger than any state militia in America and was roughly one-third the size of the entire federal armed forces. He controlled the legislative, judicial, and executive branches of city government. He sent a petition to the United States uh, Congress which declared Nauvoo, his city, a sovereign city-state, basically a Mormon Vatican that had its own military. He had multiple printing press establishments that were churning out propaganda at an alarming rate. He had a gun manufacturer in the city, the guns that took the West, Browning Guns. They had a huge factory in Nauvoo. He had politicians in his pocket vying for the Mormon voting bloc, and he frequently shared letters with governors of states, and he personally met with President of the United States at the time, Martin Van Buren. Simply put, it strains my own vocabulary to begin to even try to describe how powerful Joseph Smith was and how much of a threat he posed to American democracy. He truly wanted to overthrow the government and replace it with his own Mormon theocracy, which had anointed him prophet, priest, and king over all of Israel, which is to say over all of the world. Um, he also ran a sex slavery and trafficking ring in his city and then called it polygamy, uh, you know, the new and everlasting covenant. So a man this powerful, this controversial and lawless can't continue on such a path for a very long without raising the ire of equally powerful people. Eventually, a Mormon turned a dissenter named William Law formed his own breakoff faction of the church and wrote the Nauvoo Expositor, which described the political, legal, and sex slavery aspects of this criminal empire of Nauvoo. This guy on the left is William Law. Uh, the frontispiece of the Expositor is in the middle, and the painting on the right side of the page is known as the last public address of General Joseph Smith, which Joseph gave in front of hundreds of his Nauvoo Legion soldiers, thousands of his followers, and in view of constables who had active arrest warrants from the governor of Illinois to arrest Joseph Smith. 
Those men were unable to effect the arrest because Joseph Smith had declared martial law in the city and the Nauvoo Legion were constantly patrolling the city and jailing anybody who didn't have business in the city or a reason to be there. And all of these pressures eventually came to a head. And Joe thought that he eventually had the legal high ground. So his wives and his best friends called him a coward. And with the assurance of safety from the governor of Illinois, Joseph Smith finally decided to surrender because if he failed to surrender, that would bring the entire force of the Illinois militia on his own little theocracy. And who knows what that might look like. Two days before facing charges of counterfeit, treason, and inciting riot, on June 27, 1844, Joseph Smith was assassinated in Carthage, Illinois. Now, had he survived the encounter or had he somehow escaped Carthage jail, the impacts, the historical implications of that would be far-reaching and they would have shaped American history. Um, and we don't really have time to get into that. Um, uh, check out the Council of 50 series on Naked Mormonism to, to kind of get a sense for what that is. Uh, or we can try and discuss that in the Q&A if, y'all would, uh, if that's something that interests y'all. So this, the death of Joseph Smith kicked off a multiple years-long schism crisis. The problem was Joe had named roughly seven different people to be his rightful successors, including his oldest son, before he died. And all of these dudes claimed to be the next one true prophet. By 1844, roughly 3,000 Mormon converts had emigrated from Europe to Nauvoo in the three years previous to Joseph Smith's death. Now, those immigrants, Mormons, uh, those immigrant Mormons had learned to trust Brigham Young and the Quorum of Apostles or the Q12, who were the people that converted those those European immigrants in the first place. So those immigrants almost exclusively sided with the apostles under Brigham Young's leadership during the schism crisis. Brigham Young had roughly six to seven thousand followers immigrate to Utah with him beginning in 1847. The slump that we saw in the previous graph from 1844 to 1847 was all because of this schism crisis. So here is a period era illustration of the overland trail from right to left of Nauvoo to the Great Salt Lake where the Mormons settled. So where Brigham Young, the apostles and their largely European convert settlers decided to put down roots was actually Mexico at the time. Uh, it, that was completely outside of any law enforcement of the federal government. The federal government, they wanted the area west of the Rockies settled, but passing any law or resolution officially at the time would require too much political capital when the issue of slavery and American expansion were the political hot topics of the day. But if some radical religious sect of the day just so happened to go out there to Mexico and set up their own government, the politicians sure wouldn't be opposed to it. This is the map of what Mormons under Brigham Young established briefly as the Nation of Deseret, which operated for roughly two and a half years. It is massive. It's it's more landmass than Texas and Wyoming combined. It's a huge theocratic territory. So Brigham Young sent Mormon settlers all directions from Salt Lake City um, upon their arrival in 1847. This is the largest theocracy in American history. But finally, 
The Compromise of 1850 set the boundaries for Texas. Uh, it carved out California as a non-slave state, and it formed the Utah Territory, among other things. Brigham Young was named Territorial Governor of Utah. That means Brigham Young was prophet and president of the church, the religious king. He was governor of the Utah Territory and commander-in-chief of the territorial militia, the Nauvoo Legion. So he was a military king. And he was also director of the Office of Indian Affairs, which is to say the xenophobe-in-chief. We have one of those today in America. That I mean, that represents a trifecta of government and religious authority all embodied in one tyrannical man. He was the sole ruling power of Utah, and no lines existed between church and state authority. After 20 years and two prophets of trying, a sovereign Mormon theocracy had finally been realized. Now, when I introduced Brigham Young, I told you to put a pin in him and his racism and in the priesthood. So let's pull out that pen. Let's talk about the curse of Cain from the Bible, it being connected to the skin color in the Book of Mormon and reiterated in the Book of Moses. And then the penalty for the curse of black skin that was in the Book of Abraham. I think we can all recognize that there isn't white supremacy in the Bible, right? Like there's there's plenty of racism and xenophobia in the Bible, but there aren't any white people in the book. It takes other Mormon scriptures to establish white supremacy and to correlate skin color with righteousness. The white, fair, and delightsome are the chosen people of God. The dark-skinned are the cursed people of God. Now, I'm not going to argue that white supremacists like didn't use the Bible to justify slavery and that they don't do the same today to justify all forms of bigotry, right? That's not what I'm saying. My point is Christianity is racist, but Mormonism is white supremacist, and that's a very important distinction. There's that passage uh, from earlier in the Book of Mormon uh, on the slide right now uh, talking about the skin color and the skin of blackness being the curse for the purposes of making black people loathsome. Unto the righteous, white, and delightsome chosen people of God. Utah Territory was also a slave state, which was a political perspective for which Brigham Young openly and repeatedly advocated. Quoting from the slide, we must believe in slavery. This colored race have been subjected to severe curses, which they have in their families and their classes and in their various capacities brought upon themselves. And until the curse is removed by him... God, who placed it upon them, they must suffer under its consequences. I am not authorized to remove it. I am a firm believer in slavery. And Utah was a slave territory. Now, for the rest of the slide, the man that you see on the bottom right is a man named Gordon, who escaped from a Louisiana plantation, and that is an iconic photo in American history. The standing man next to Gordon is named Green Flake. Green Flake was brought to the Utah Territory in the first wagon train as a slave. And he was given to the church as a slave to pay tithing. Yes, in its early Utah period era, Mormonism accepted a black man as tithing. Now, Green Flake was freed sometime shortly before the Civil War, but... One Mormon settler actually wrote a letter to Brigham Young complaining that Greenflake's master was going way too easy on him. Quote, 
Flake was a boy who was mean, dirty, and saucy to his owner. Green needed a man that would treat him right and make him work and behave himself. End quote. Slaves as tithing. That's a that's a real fun time in Mormon history. The, like I can pull racist quotes from Brigham Young and racist scriptures from uh, uh, Mormon scripture all day, right? Like uh, it, they are numerous, they are plentiful, and it leaves absolutely no doubt that these people are white supremacists, right? Um, or, or I can even, you know, I, I, it it all comes from Joseph Smith, and it was captured by Brigham Young, and it was codified into church and territorial government by Brigham Young, the racist in chief. Um, race mixing results in death, according to Mormon scripture. Uh, black people have the curse because they were cursed even before their death, according to the plan of salvation. And uh, we could talk about the plan of salvation in the Q and A as well. Um, the Mormons owned slaves in early Utah. And they had deliberate 19th century white supremacist scriptures to justify that. But there's also another level to this because the curse of Cain, this curse of dark skin, remains to this day. You remember this guy we showed a little earlier uh, holding Peter's key? That's current prophet of the church, Russell M. Nelson. This guy was born in 1924. <laughs> And he's one of the wealthiest men alive. So you know that he's got a finger on the pulse of race issues across the world. Uh, how wealthy, do you ask? Um, great question. We don't actually know how wealthy he is and how wealthy the church is. Uh, but we know that Mormonism is more wealthy than the Vatican. Uh, and we could talk uh, about Mormon money in the q a if, if that's of interest. Uh, but the key that this guy holds to the priesthood is is what makes him prophet. It's the, the priesthood. It's what was granted to him by the church. All men in the church today get the priesthood, but they get special keys based on their role in the church. So all men get the priesthood, but if you're a bishop, you have special keys. If you're a patriarch, you have special keys. Stake president, quorum of the 70, apostles. They all have different sets of keys, basically, uh, which is uh, an amorphous concept, uh, not actual physical keys. Uh, but our vicious racist, Brigham Young, he instituted the priesthood ban for black men, meaning that black men couldn't go to Mormon heaven until 1978 when God changed his mind about black people. So a new revelation came out in 1978, and in this revelation was given uh, by then-President Spencer W. Kimball. The church stated, quote, The long-promised day has come when every faithful, worthy man in the church may receive the holy priesthood, end quote. So no longer were black men barred from entering the temple to do the necessary handshakes and the throat slittings, which would allow them to get into Mormon heaven. But you can't read this revelation without wondering, why doesn't it say anything about the curse being lifted? It says that black, man can ha black men can have the priesthood now. Uh, it says all men can have the priesthood. Of course, it doesn't refer to who couldn't have the priesthood before the revelation. But it doesn't refer to any of the scripture passages talking about the curse. It doesn't even mention the curse or skin color whatsoever. It just says all men can have the priesthood. And this is a super important distinction. In Mormonism, new revelation trumps old revelation. Mormon leadership can amend their scriptures at any time. And the Mormons vote unanimously to accept the new revelation as canon. This 1978 revelation 
does not repeal the curse of Cain, the curse of dark skin, or do anything to nullify those white supremacist scripture passages. Those passages, those that white supremacy still stands as God's words in Mormon theology and scripture. Now, Mormons will defend the claim that the priesthood ban was lifted in 1978, therefore the church isn't racist. But until those passages are removed or edited or amended or placed into an appendix of the Book of Mormon uh, with some commentary of why they were removed because of the, the horrifically racist tendencies in them, the church, Mormonism, is holding to overtly and unabashedly white supremacist scripture written by a 19th century con man. That's today. Let's rewind a little bit and get back to this wonderful guy, Brigham Young, because his white supremacy knew no bounds. And there were some problems, quote unquote, problems for him to deal with when the Mormons started settling in the Utah area. Native Americans. Right now, remember, according to Joseph Smith, the dude who started this whole racist mess, the Book of Mormon was written by ancient Israelite Christians who sailed to America and settled the continents and wrote their history on gold plates in reformed Egyptian. What's your evidence for that, Bryce? Uh, No, 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 no evidence. The Book of Mormon was written for the purpose of assimilating the Native Americans, getting them to convert to Christianity, after which Joseph Smith would eventually federate those Native Americans into an army to ally with uh, freed slaves and then overthrow the American government. But as the Mormons encountered Natives... Brigham Young began to treat them in his characteristic white supremacy ways. Quote, these aborigines of our country roam the plains and are so wild you cannot tame them, meaning enslave them. They once had the gospel delivered to them, the Book of Mormon. Then they turned away and become so wicked that God cursed them with this dark and benighted and loathsome condition. And they want to sit on the ground in the dirt and to live by hunting, and they cannot be civilized, end quote. Relations between the Mormons and natives were initially pleasant when the Mormons were outnumbered by the natives. The natives at that time had no reason to believe that the Mormons were anything but friendly, and they certainly didn't believe that the Mormons were going to be permanent settlers in the new Utah Territory. Brigham Young famously said, Quote, it's easier to feed them than fight them, end quote, in 1848 when the Mormons were beginning their settling efforts. But due to differences in culture and the natives realizing that the Mormons were there to stay, small fights eventually broke out beginning in 1849 that eventually became a series of war, uh, of wars, sorry. But by the end of all of these conflicts, the Mormons summarily extinguished basically every major settlement of Native Americans or relegated them to shrinking reservations after signing contracts that were repeatedly violated. All the while, white European Mormons continuously flowed into the territory. The massacre at Timpanogos, the Bear River Massacre, the Battle of Gunnison Reservoir, dozens of battles better described as massacres where the Mormons murdered thousands of Native Americans. And while this conflict raged, Native Americans were dying off by the thousands through warfare, through starvation, through old world diseases. And some of them just accepted the futility of fighting and then they they agreed to settle on to reservations. All during this, European immigrants who converted to the church flooded into Utah from Brigham Young's Perpetual Immigration Fund. So the result of this, when the Mormons arrived in 1847 – 
Utah Territory, what was Mexico at the time, was almost exclusively Native Americans, roughly 20,000 people at best estimate. Of course, those numbers are estimates, and they're extremely squishy because records are terrible for it. The 1850 Territorial Census lists 11,000 white Americans, almost exclusively Mormons, recent immigrants from Europe. Reliable population data for uh, natives prior to the 20th century is simply non-existent. All we really have is estimates. But the native population wouldn't recover to the pre-Mormon level of 20,000 people until 1980. It took over 140 years for the native population in Utah to recover to what it was before the white supremacist Mormons began settling the area and killing them off. But those cultures are growing today, which is actually really encouraging. And you can see uh, the graph here of the population data. And there is indeed, I know it's hard to see, there is a line across the bottom of that graph that shows the native populations where it's reliable. In effect, this population data describes genocide and eugenics and white supremacy. And and it's worth noting that this is just one snapshot of a subgenocide within the broader context of um you, you know extermination and more uh, and American colonialism. The Mormon genocide of natives wasn't just physical, but it was also historical and cultural as well. Because the Mormons gave the Native Americans a history book the Book of Mormon, which was written by a white country bumpkin from New York and claimed that it was not only the history of the natives, but it was scripture direct from God. This was a purge. The Native Americans outnumbered Mormons three to one in 1847 when the Mormons began to arrive. By 1880, there were less than 1,000 natives in Utah Territory and over 140,000 white European settlers. As of the 2010 census, Native Americans were just 1.3% of Utah's population, while Caucasians are over 88% of Utah population. Utah is almost the whitest state in America. This is what eugenics looks like. And there, there are, you know, other aspects to, to about this that we kind of can't get into here, like, you know, native slavery, uh, Mormons buying young native girls and marrying them as plural wives in order to breed the dark skin curse out of them. This is all it's a dark side of American and of Mormon history. And on the Mormon side, it's all spurned and it's all justified by white supremacy scriptures and manifest destiny. This is God's promised land. Thus, the thesis of my presentation today, Mormonism represents a large-scale, isolated experiment in racial and religious purity. This is cultural and ethnic eugenics. And Utah today is the result of that. But this also never ended. It's not like the eugenics experiment ever ended. A century after their arrival in the area, the Mormon church created what they called the Indian Placement Program in 1954 in order to Christianize natives who were living on the reservations. So why did they do this? Why did the church create the Indian Placement Program? Well, cultural purification and uh, continued efforts of assimilation. If you get the natives to convert to Christianity, then they are they are. They are just going back to their Christian roots from when they were the Lamanites and the Nephites from the Book of Mormon, right? 
it's it's cultural purification. It's assimilation. And during this Indian placement program's 42 years of existence, an estimated 50,000 Native American children were taken off of their reservations and were put into white Mormon households in Utah, Arizona, and Idaho. Think of it like an exchange student program, but more eugenics-y. This guy, Spencer W. Kimball, he was prophet from 1973 to 1985. He was the person who crafted the Indian placement program. And the the program basically hit the, its heyday during his presidency in the church. Quote, I saw a striking contrast in the progress, the progress of the Indian people today. They are fast becoming a white and delightsome people. For years, they have been growing white and delightsome as they were promised. The children in the home placement program in Utah are often lighter than their brothers and sisters in the Hogan's on the reservation. End quote. Yeah, that's that's great. And it's all deeply rooted right into Mormon scripture. The Indian placement program was disbanded in 1996. I was five years old when this thing was finally removed and disbanded. 1996 is when the Mormon church stopped trying to overtly assimilate Native Americans in order to turn their skin white and delightsome. 1996, we we knew what dna was before then we knew that native americans didn't come from israelites by 1996 it's 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 truly incredible and one thing that's super notable about all of this for this effective genocide of tens of thousands of native americans for their their theoretical descendants who would never be born for all of those lost cultures which were nearly cleansed from existence no fault has ever been acknowledged by the perpetrators of these atrocities, much less like apologize for or paid reparations for or anything. And more importantly, all of the scripture passages which justified these atrocities, they all remain in place while over 60,000 missionaries across the globe hand out those hateful little blue bound books of Mormon of pure white supremacy. The racial and the cultural superiority gets even deeper. Annually, Utah celebrates its Days of 47 festivities to commemorate the arrival of Brigham Young and the Mormons to the Great Basin in 1847. Of course, this celebration just further traumatizes all of the natives who suffered the effects of the Mormon genocide and experiment in eugenics. Since we're celebrating genocidal dictators, why don't we just declare April 20th a national holiday in Poland? That's what this is tantamount to. And white supremacy is alive and well in the church today. This is a lesson manual that was printed for the 2020 children's courses. On the left is when this was originally printed in 1997, which was simply reprinted for the 2020 manual. But the church, after receiving backlash for printing this, edited the online version but didn't issue new print copies. In it, it states explicitly on the left side of this slide, quote, Laman and Lemuel's followers called themselves the Lamanites. They became a dark-skinned people. God cursed them because of their wickedness, end quote. And it cites the Book of Mormon passage, 2 Nephi chapter 5, verses 21, that we talked about a couple times in the presentation so far. The next tile down on the left side of that this screen says, quote, The Lamanites became lazy, and would not work, end quote. 
those lazy, dark-skinned Lamanites. This was printed in 2020. 2020, this year. And then the final title says, quote, the people who followed Nephi called themselves Nephites. The Lamanites hated the Nephites and wanted to kill them, end quote. That, that's for, that is for kids. That's aimed for kids. These white supremacist passages aimed at kids were printed in the 2020 manual. So let's, let's wrap this all together. The takeaway here. Due to this overtly white supremacist belief system, Utah Mormonism has effectively become the longest-running isolated eugenics experiment in American history. Native Americans were nearly eradicated while tens of thousands of white European Mormons flooded into the Utah Territory and they interbred. As of the 2020 census, to reiterate, Native Americans were 1.3% of Utah's population, while Caucasians were over 88%. In summary, if not for Brigham Young and his buddies going to Europe and forming this perpetual immigration fund, Mormonism would never have the membership and power that it currently wields. If not for the tens of thousands of European immigrants funneling into the Mormon theocracy, American history would look very different than it does today. And... Native Americans today might represent more than the scarce one and a half percent of the current Utah population. And another fun fact, there are statues all over of Brigham Young uh, and there are four universities across the globe celebrating this irredeemable and genocidal tyrant. Mormonism is super duper white supremacist and millions of potential people in countless historical and potential cultures died or never came to life because of a white supremacist Mormon theocracy practicing eugenics. And that eugenics experiment and that religion is alive and well today. This white supremacy and the European-American immigration shaped the course of American history. And most importantly, if history is any indicator of future events, the history of Mormonism should be a bleak sign of warning about where we came from and the potential future on the horizon if society is unable to progress. And as uncomfortable as these conversations can be, and as not humorous as they are, even though I tried to do my best to make them a little humorous, current events illustrate that it's all the more important to have these conversations because they make us uncomfortable. So with that, I, of course, want to thank Skeptics in the Pub for hosting me for this event. Uh, thanks to Marsh for reaching out, and thank you to all of you viewers for giving me your time. Well, welcome back. We've got a full slate of questions on Slido, and I've got a full-ish glass of wine, so it's time for the Q&A. Um, our first question, Bryce, is how do ordinary practicing Mormons deal with the wackiest stuff? Do they just not know about it, or do they choose to quietly ignore it? And that question's from Ace Andrew, who I feel some kinship with. <laughs> uh it's a mixed bag. It depends uh, whether you're talking about polygamy or you're talking about the Book of Abraham translation or historicity of the Book of Mormon. Um, when believing members are presented skeptical questions, they will often say, well, I know all about that stuff. Um, if they are presented those questions by somebody who is a member or is having a faith crisis and like talking to their parents about it, <clears throat> they'll say, well, I knew all about that stuff. Why are you just learning it for the first time? Um, 
when in reality they may have heard about those things, but they don't actually know the history or the nuances of those things. Um, that's the vast majority. There are some apologists and some, uh, you know, under the employee of the church itself who put a lot of time and effort and, you know, millions of man hours and billions of dollars over a century and a half to create a correlated narrative of Mormon history that is that you can sell. And they do that through obfuscation of facts, through suppressing documents, and through just you know a, a widespread effort of propaganda. And then they have a sales force of sixty thousand plus Mormons who are you know button up, good looking missionaries who are walking around and handing people books of Mormon. Um, so into David Drummer's question a little bit, um, Dave asks, why does it seem like so few people know that Mormonism is so outrageously racist, misogynistic, and appalling? Many people think it's just Christianity light, and it's it's a similar kind of image management thing. Is that is that how they do that? Yeah, and that actually taps into something that's super deeply rooted in Mormonism, and it's a concept of milk before meat, or don't cast your pearls before swine. You don't get to learn about this stuff until you're an initiated long, lifelong member, until you get baptized, until you spend years going to gospel doctrine classes. And you don't learn about these things unless they are culturally ingrained uh, in you from birth, like in my case, right? Um, so you don't get to learn about this stuff. And when you do learn about it, it is very, very, if I can use the term, pun intended, whitewashed and propagandized. It's the, the same system where you're not allowed to learn the secrets of Scientology until you've already paid them too much money to doubt it. Bingo. That's right. Yeah. Um, Anonymous asks, is Mormonism growing as a religion or has membership dropped due to younger folk leaving the organization? Uh, more than half of millennials are leaving the church. Uh, the The membership numbers uh, for younger generations are are skewing very much in a downward trend. Uh, the baptisms are outclassing the number of people who are leaving the church if we are using the church's own membership statistics. If we use independent statistics uh, that are ascertained through a number of other methods and don't rely on the church's statistics, it is bleeding. It is hemorrhaging members right now, especially younger, less orthodox, more progressive uh, people. It's not going to survive very much longer in its current form. Um, but it's got enough money to survive as a corporation in perpetuity. It can live off of the interest of its investments forever right now. So what does the survival for the church look like when their pews are empty, but their bank accounts are full? If that's what they want, then they're going to have that soon. OK, um, another anonymous question, presumably somebody else. How does Mormonism deal with racism, the racism within itself when evangelizing in places like Africa? Uh <clears throat> Uh, that's uh, that's kind of a multifaceted question. When we talk, uh, when people, uh, um, especially missionaries, are approached with passages like we read on the, the presentation, Second Nephi chapter five, verse twenty-one, where it overtly says the skin of blackness is the curse. When they're when they're presented with that from a critical perspective, their response will be, "Well, that's just talking about the countenance of the person, not their actual skin color." So, like, if you see somebody who's up to no good walking down the street who has, like, a hood on and, you know, you know that they're they're doing something bad or they're about to do something bad, you know that their their countenance is very dark. Um, and that's basically what they do to equivocate or try and deflect the issue from it being skin color in spite of 
over a dozen passages explicitly in the Book of Mormon, the Book of Moses, and the Book of Abraham that state the skin uh, skin of blackness is the curse. So deflecting the issue is the, the short answer, I guess. Okay. Um, Trevor Smith wants to know, how much political power do the Mormons have in current-day America? Uh that's uh okay. So Mormonism uh, represents uh, about two and a half to three percent of the American population. It's not that big, uh, but currently uh, anywhere from about seventeen to twenty percent of American politicians are Mormon. Um, they are vastly overrepresented uh, overrepresented in American politics and Utah politics. It is almost impossible to get elected to any position, judges, sheriffs, any any political office if you're not a mormon especially in smaller communities not so much the case in metropolitan salt lake city uh but anywhere outside of salt lake city it is almost impossible to get elected unless you're going to church every single sunday and you know sitting in the pews with all of your constituents um is a largely mormon state rather than just a an established church that doesn't really represent people um it, well, because the all of the population trends and all of the religious trends that were discussed in the presentation, it's not like the, Utah ever evolved past that, right? Like Utah is still overtly, pro, predominantly Mormon. Um, and something about Mormonism as well uh, encourages, the culture of Mormonism encourages people to get educated, well, sorry, men to get educations, uh, to run for office, to to be stalwart members of the community, um, which does trend at the cultural level to producing people who are engineers and dentists and physicians and, and well-paying people who give a lot of tithing to the church and who aspire to political office as well. Okay. Um, Andy Wilson, first of all, says hi. Hi, Andy. <laughs> And asks, have you addressed the white supremacy argument to a Mormon where they had a go at refuting it? And if so, can you tell us a bit about that? I have never argued with this or, or argued about this with Mormons who have ever defended it. Um, it has only been a deflection. Um, and I I stick with the the claim that the church has to decanonize the Book of Mormon and the Pearl of Great Price. They have to decanonize these things because they are not historical books and they are predicated on 19th century white supremacy. Until those books are decanonized or until they're edited to like, um, you know, like Warner Brothers cartoons that are like they have, you know, like black people with like big lips and eating watermelon and stuff where like at the beginning of those cartoons now they don't edit the cartoons, but they put a disclaimer at the beginning of this is a marker of the racism at the time. And to edit and remove these things would be tantamount to saying it doesn't exist. Until the church does that stuff with its scripture, um, it's a white supremacist religion. Uh, there, there is no middle ground on this. They have to decanonize or they have to edit their own scriptures. Okay. Um, next question is anonymous. Um, and they say they've never met a Mormon who wasn't really nice to the point of being a bit creepy. Is there something <laughs> about the religion that compels people to act in that way? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that is hand in hand with uh, prosperity doctrine. Um, in, in the church, uh, bishops and state presidents and all of the, the leadership at, at the, the community level, they are all members of the community and they are all unpaid clergy. And because there's the idea of prosperity doctrine built deeply into the Book of Mormon, the more uh, successful a person is, obviously, the more blessed they are, the more that they are righteous. Therefore, the people who are bishops and state presidents and in uh, the local leadership levels 
most often they are the people who are your doctors, who are your dentists, who are your businessmen, who are your lawyers, who are whatever. Um, and those people continually get lifted up through the ranks of the leadership. Um, so, uh, I hope that kind of got to the, the root of the question. Um, it's just, it's, it's prosperity doctrine. I think so. Um, okay. The next question is from Mr. Sandwich. You know what? I'm just going to read it. Are magic underpants available in different colors or just white and delightsome? Oh, no, just white and delightsome. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, and th- that goes actually a step further because when you're in the temple, you have to wear what they, co- what Mormons call your whites. Uh, so you have your, your garments, your G's, your magic underwear that are already a white mesh. But then you wear your whites on top of that, which is a white jumpsuit or a white suit or whatever. And you can only perform ordinances in this purely white clothing, white tie, white everything. There's no color in the temple. It's just white and gold fixtures. Sounds very classy. (laughs) Um, Marianne asks, how do we know that Mormonism is richer than the Vatican? Apparently somebody on Twitter is being very skeptical. Oh, yeah. I I encourage skepticism about that, right? Um, So obviously when it comes to uh, religious finances, they're a black box, whether it's Catholicism or Mormonism. It's super hard to get in to nail down really hard numbers. Uh, But there are some marked differences between Catholicism and Mormonism. Catholicism engages in what we would typically classify as humanitarian aid of building hospitals, building orphanages, building things that typically don't make them money. Mormonism doesn't do that. There are no Mormon-owned hospitals. There are no Mormon-owned orphanages. Mormonism only engages in business practices where it can make money. The largest cattle ranch in America is Mormon-owned. They own 3% of the state of Florida as a cattle and and um, an orchard uh, farm and ranch like they engage in extensive uh, and widespread business practices that are making them a lot of money. And they have investments that continue to make them a lot of money. Um, and also Mormonism compels tithing. Right. So like you can be a Catholic and you can be a lapsed Catholic and you go to Christmas mass or whatever and you don't ever have to give tithing. To be a good Mormon in good standing, you have to have a temple recommend. And in order to get that temple recommend, you have to pay a full tithing, which is 10% of your gross. And you hold what's known as tithing settlement every year with your bishop, with your local leader, where your bishop calls you in and asks, are you paying a full tithing? And he pulls out the numbers and shows you how much tithing you gave in the last year. And he says, is this a full and honest tithe? And if you answer that, Yes, whether it's true or not, like you get to stay a member in good standing. If you say no, then he works out a program with you uh, that basically compels you to pay tithing, including back tithing, so that you can continue to be in good standing. So by best estimates, the Mormonism pulls in between five and seven billion dollars a year in tax free income from tithing alone. And that says nothing of their investment portfolio. There was a leak just last year, and I did a four-part series on Glassbox Podcast about Mormon money uh, that centered around that leak coming out. But that leak came out from uh, somebody who works in one of the financial arms of the church, and it detailed a spreadsheet of over $124 billion in reserves. Um, that, at the time, that was Jeff Bezos' money, right? Like, that's 
that is insanely wealthy. And unfortunately, that was just the tip of the iceberg of Mormon finances because it also didn't include uh, the vast majority of their land holdings. Um, it didn't include the vast majority of their business contracts. It was just purely an investment portfolio. So that $124 billion already outclasses the Vatican, and it's only uh, it's only a fraction of their entire portfolio and all of the wealth that they do have. And what fraction of it it is, we don't know because money in religion is a black box. They don't have to file everything else that all other nonprofits have to file. Well, the, the next question was going to be, how did Mormonism get so rich? I, I, I hope we've covered that because that was a lot. Yep. Um, all business. The, the next question is from Paul who asks, is it true that the Latter-day Saints bought ad space in the theater programs for the musical The Book of Mormon? Yep, I have uh, I have two of those uh, copies here uh, somewhere on on one of my bookshelves. Uh, yeah, I, I've attended uh, I attended one of the plays in Denver and in Salt Lake City. If you can go to it in Salt Lake City, do it. It's way better because uh, everybody there is ex Mormon who's at the play. Uh, but yes, they they have ads that are in there. A bright smiling face of just a happy clappy looking Mormon, um, and that's you know part of the prosperity doctrine. If you look happy. You you are a good Mormon uh, that says now uh, you watch the play and now read the book and it shows a Mormon holding the Book of Mormon. Uh, they they did what they could with the play and that was the, mo- the that was like the most graceful way that they could do it because if they tried to like ban it from Utah or they tried to oppose it in any way that was going to be egg on their face. So they they did what they could, <laughs> masterfully done. Probably the best they could have done. Yeah. Um, okay. Dale asks. Why did Mormonism grow so much so quickly? Um, I imagine that most Americans did think it was rubbish. So how did it become such a big religion in such a short time? Hmm. That's a, that's a super deep and multifaceted question as well. Um, because of the industriousness of the Mormons and their appeal to the outside world, you see the smiling missionaries and whenever – like. You, Somebody in the question said it like you whenever you you see Mormon, like they're always smiling. They're always happy. It's all fake, but they are always smiling. Right. Um, That has been the the product of a centuries long missionary campaign and trying to put on the best possible face for this organization. Uh, There's there's a cultural idea in Mormonism that says every member a missionary. Every Mormon is always looking for an opportunity to bring souls into the church uh, because they they're told in the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith's revelations, that uh, they will be blessed if they bring souls, uh, if they bring souls to the gospel Uh, and their, their blessings are attached to how many souls they bring to the church. Right. So um, it's super good for the member themselves to get somebody baptized. That's a huge win for them. It's super good for them to do temple ordinances for dead people because they know when they die and they go to the afterlife, then those dead people are going to be so happy that the the person did the ordinances for them because now they can all be saved. Um, And it's at the very cultural level of putting on a good face and having a huge sales force of tens of thousands of people working with algorithms and numbers and curated lesson manuals and scripts that are deeply researched and deeply vetted and, and deeply correlated to be the most effective and uh, just spreading that missionary effort so vastly in over a hundred languages 
all across the globe, over 120 countries. Um, the people who believe in it, the people who join, basically self-select to be members of the church. And with such an aggressive sales campaign, it can't help but bring in a lot of those self-selecting people who are going to be faithful, lifelong members of the church. Okay, I feel like that might slightly lead into the next question. It's another anonymous one. Um, how did the Mormon church leaders react when, having done all that, it became clear that mankind very likely originated from Africa? Uh, Mormonism still uh, is against evolution. Um, they're they're in uh, kind of like an old earth creationist uh, kind of perspective. Um and that's unfortunately the the temple ceremonies themselves act out the Garden of Eden and Genesis. Um, so it's so deeply rooted in the ritualism of Mormonism that it's very hard for them to get away from a historical Bible. Um, and therefore, evolution is still largely treated as satanic lies uh, to by Mormons. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with very staunchly believing Mormons who think that, um, how to say this? Uh, so in, in Mormon theology, we all become gods. The good Mormons are humans and they, they become gods. Uh, Elohim who organized our planet, uh, through his son, Jehovah organized the planet from existing materials out in outer space and then formed it all together on earth uh, and what became earth. And, that basically means that either Jehovah put dinosaur bones into the earth uh, to test our faith or that the dinosaur bones were basically floating around in space and that when he organized the planet together from those existing materials, that they were brought together and embedded deep into the, the undersoil, uh, into the mantle. Uh, so there are ways of dealing with the archaeological evidence. Um and without having to confront uh, the fact that none of it is historical. Um, and most Mormons who do actually confront that thing become what they say as a nuanced believer after a faith crisis, or they leave the church. There have been a lot of surprises in the talk in the QA so far, but space dinosaurs was not anything <laughs> I was expecting. Man, it's... it's um, when I went on, uh, just a brief anecdote, when I went on, I, I think it was Scathing Atheist a uh, few years ago now, uh, the way that Noah described it was fractal bullshit. The, the more that you look into it, you realize that it just breaks down and breaks down and breaks down into more and more crazy, wacky bullshit. And I could do this for hours talking about the craziest, wackiest bullshit the Mormonism believes. Um, anyway, sorry, please yeah. continue. <laughs> I, I should say before, before the Q&A started, Bryce asked me to interrupt him if any of the answers got too long, because the whole topic is just, don't get me started. Um, <laughs> the, the next question is from Vic Earl, who asks, is it true that there's a high consumption of porn by Mormons? Um, that's, uh, that's actually kind of tough. Um, Mormons, in some ways, are some of the most ethical porn consumers because by population, they are the highest or highest paid porn users, um, which is kind of counterintuitive because porn is super forbidden in the church. But if like if you're going to watch porn in an ethical way, like pay for your porn, like, you know, only fan sites and, and like, you know, independent creators and stuff um, like it's, it's a super good way to consume porn. 
Um, but Mormons happen to have the highest subscription rates of any of any of the 50 states, which is the weird and good and odd. Um, uh, but they're also super duper sexually repressed. Um, and I, I don't know how to wrap my mind around that. So it's not that Mormons consume more porn. It's just that Mormons are more likely to pay for their porn than people than everybody else. Do not know what to do with that information. I know. Right, <laughs> me neither. It's, it's, it's maddening. Right. Question does know. Um, <laughs> yeah, the next question is an anonymous one. Uh, was the idea of Jewish tribes in America new to Joseph Smith, or was it already floating around in the atmosphere at the time? That was deeply in the culture. Uh, there, there are uh, dozens of books that were written at the time that claimed to be history books. Um, and uh, one of the, the foremost historians of uh, Mormon history, oh, oh, sorry, of Joseph Smith history today is named Dan Vogel. And Dan Vogel's entire uh, uh, PhD thesis was on the Mound Builders myth. Um, and that taps into what uh, like I, even I was taught in, in elementary school is like the vanishing Indian myth. Of like when European settlers got here and continued to expand westward, they were encountering largely desolate and abandoned civilizations as well as huge burial mounds and civilizations dug into uh, hills and stuff like that. They were encountering these things and they were trying to explain them because the Native Americans that they were encountering were obviously far too savage to have ever built all these civilizations, not understanding that the people they were encountering uh, were the victims of of genocide and of of biological warfare and so many uh, so many trends that caused Native American populations to collapse to the tune of somewhere between eighty and ninety five percent of Native Americans died off through the European settlement and colonialism. Um, as Europeans were encountering these these settlements and these civilizations and these burial mounds, they were trying to explain through their Christian lens of a young Earth how this all came to be and how these uh, how these societies, these civilizations were built. And some of the ways that they did that were the lost 10 tribes obviously came to America and settled the land. And those were, you know, of course, white skinned Israelites who were very enlightened and Christian. Um, and then the more uh, the dark skinned, the, the red skinned, uh, you know, Indians that we're encountering now are obviously too savage to have been descendant from those enlightened Israelites uh, and Christians. So they must have killed off all of the righteous white and delightsome uh, Nephites in Mormon tradition. That was uh, that was a concept that long predated Joseph Smith. That is back to the earliest settlements of of, uh, of American pilgrims. That is a long tradition. Joseph Smith was yet one more dude who wrote a claimed history book about Israelites settling America. Okay. Um, next question is from Anonymous, and I'm going to read it word for word. I'm not sure I can pull this off. So here we go. <laughs> okay. Did President Carter threaten the Mormons with removing their tax-free status if they didn't stop being so darn racist? So gosh, dad darn racist. <laughs> um, it, if I say it, it is. <laughs> uh, so the factors which led to the priesthood ban being lifted in 1978, um, it's one of those things that it, it's multifaceted. There's just a whole lot to it. Um, so the threats of tax exempt status being revoked, that was one of them. Um, the BYU sports teams, uh, being protested by other college sport teams. Uh, that was another factor. Um, Mormon members 
earnestly sending letters and petitions to the leadership asking them to remove the priesthood ban was another uh, factor that went into it. The church had just built a temple in Brazil, and they were about to dedicate it and open up this temple. But because of the, the African slave trade brought so many people to South America, it's really, really hard to determine who actually has African blood in South America uh, because the interbreeding has been so generational and so vast um, that they they were having a hard time keeping up their discrimination in South America where they built this new temple. Uh, so that was going to be dedicated and they wanted people, uh, locals in Brazil, to be able to attend the temple. Um, a lot of factors all went into it. Uh, and it's it's not just a threat of tax exempt status, um, but that was one. Yes, that was one of the factors. And it was actually, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think it was Jimmy Carter uh, specifically who threatened it. It was, uh, I believe, Bob Jones University refused to desegregate and they lost their tax exempt status. And the Mormon leadership saw that as the dead canary uh, like if, if we if we don't desegregate, if we you know don't see desegregate our heaven, then we're we're going to become the next ones who lose our status. Seems wild to base legal decisions on rules in heaven, but <laughs> no more wild than anything else in this story. Um, <laughs> right, stranger yeah. than fiction. Gray asks, well, it kind of is fiction. Gray asks, to what extent has Mormonism influenced mainstream U.S. culture and policy? Uh, <laughs> uh, that like that breaks down, like what era are we talking about right like uh, are we talking about the Civil War era and Utah being a slave territory are we talking about um, Republicans including Abraham Lincoln uh, passing anti-bigamy acts and the church opposing those because the government was trying to clamp down on polygamy uh, in the Utah territory are we talking about uh, women's uh, uh, women's suffrage and having the right to vote? Are we talking about the civil rights era? Are we talking about the Equal Rights Amendment? Are we talking about uh, their current long-standing opposition to gay rights and LGBTQ plus issues? Every step of the way, the church has been vociferously opposed to progress, to societal progress and equal rights throughout all of American history. It's, uh, throughout the entire time that it's existed, it has always been on the wrong side of, of these histories. Um, and that's manifested in overt things like, um, you know, Boyd K. Packer going and uh, giving a talk in Idaho that uh, decried the Equal Rights Amendment and caused Idaho to withdraw its ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, very overt, deliberate things, uh, you know lobbying uh, to the tune of like $60 million for the passage of Prop 8, the uh, anti-gay marriage uh, constitutional amendment in California. They put put tens of millions of dollars into that bill being passed. Um, Very overt things all the way down to very subtle and cultural things where uh, just, you know, a bishop getting up in front of the congregation and saying that, um, if women start going uh, into the workforce, then that's degrading or that's deteriorating the nuclear family. Um, every step of the way, at every level, the church has constantly been against equal rights and societal progress. Okay. And, and in the future, um, Julie asks, where do you see Mormonism going forward, given their white supremacist past? Uh, hmm. I kind of tapped into that answer a little bit earlier. Until they make some serious changes, members are going to continue to bleed out. 
the older Orthodox members are going to continue to die off. Uh, and that, that tithing income is no longer going to be coming to them. Uh, the younger members are leaving in droves because they are not a big fan of bigotry and they got gay friends, right? Um, the church will continue to exist as an entity. What that entity looks like, I don't know. Pews will continue to empty. Wards and stakes will be dissolved. Congregations will be dissolved and combined into, you know, small congregations will be combined into one larger congregation. The church will continue as a business entity ad infinitum. They can continue forever based on just the financial portfolio that they currently have. Um, So, you know, declining membership, increasing uh, pocketbook like every other corporation, huge corporation in America. Do you imagine that they are going to make those changes and become more less racist? Or do you think they're just going to stick to their guns and hold their money? That's uh, th- so that's a great question. And I th- I see that as a question of when, not if, um, because every change that the church has made, like the 1978 lifting of the priesthood ban, it came because of massive secular push. Uh, and massive uh, corporate disincentives, uh, like you know, losing tax exempt status. There was the secular society was pushing on the church really hard, and finally it changed after it could no longer reasonably keep a hold of its bigotry and, and white supremacy. Um, it requires the cultural shift of everyday Mormons understanding what's really in their scriptures, which I mean, like, that's not, that's not specific to Mormons. I mean, it's, you know, like, I mean, all of us atheists are like Christians. Have you ever read your Bible? Right. Same thing with anti Mormon or ex Mormons and uh, Mormons. Like, have you read the book of Abraham? Have you read these books and seen how racist they are? Um, so that comes at the cultural level, but that also comes at the institutional level and pushing on the church uh, through large public demonstrations and marches that I've attended and, uh, you know, constantly speaking out and bringing awareness to this issue. Um, the more that that happens, the more that it's going to be less reasonable and less tenable for them to continue to hold to these things. And make no mistake – the church knows, the church leadership knows that these issues are present. They know these criticisms because the church is run by lawyers, businessmen, uh, surgeons and physicians. Like It's run by educated and wealthy people who have a finger on the pulse of the business world. When it becomes a bad business decision to continue to hold to bigotry, the church will change. Now, when that is, I don't know. I don't know. It's the future. There's too much unknown. Okay, thank you. Um, and thank you for indulging me because that was just my question that I saw. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the next question is from Skeptic Alice, who asks, could you explain the self-serving reasons that Joseph Smith taught slaves to read? Um, this is something I just very briefly touched on in the presentation, but at the, end, at the beginning of it all, the Book of Mormon itself was an assimilationist Christian book. It was created in order to give Native Americans a Christian history in the hopes that they would convert. And Joseph Smith, throughout his history, repeatedly made overt gestures to convert Native Americans. And that's because he understood that the largest untapped populations that would be able to overthrow the government were oppressed Native Americans and slaves. If he could federate oppressed Native Americans and freed slaves together, he could start the Civil War and bring about the Mormon Revolution. 
in order to do that, he would need to be their Moses. He would have to be their American Moses, their American Muhammad, um, and lead that revolution. So teaching slaves to read is the first steps towards a slave uprising and a rebellion. And if you bring in Native Americans from the West across the Mississippi into a pincher move uh, with the American South and have the slaves uprise from the East Coast and, and pincher onto the, the American South and take over the South, then you can take that, that federated uh, military of believing Mormon, Christian, Native Americans and slaves and freed slaves and you can you know, take the fight to Washington, D.C. and overthrow the government and instate your Mormon theocracy. At the end of the day, that was Joseph Smith's dream. Uh, and I talk about that a lot on, uh, I mean, especially on the last most recent episodes of Naked Mormonism. But uh, there's a lot of documentation to support that thesis. This, this is a talk where they wanted to overthrow the government is something that you just lightly touch upon. And that makes perfect sense to me. And I, <laughs> I'm just having so much difficulty dealing with all of this. Um, <laughs> The next, okay, the next question is from Tanner, who asks, uh, in Canada, studies regarding indigenous reprogramming have demonstrated a terrible impact. Is there academic research on Indian placement programs? There's very, uh, there's, there's a little bit of it, and a lot of it has actually come from uh, Native American scholars. Um, I believe uh, Forrest Kutch has a, a, an article that came out a few years ago in Dialogue that talked about the, uh, the population impacts of the Indian placement program. Um, there are a few resources, but unfortunately, um, Mormonism is a very white religion, and the scholarship surrounding it is oh, just overwhelmingly done by white scholars, and we focus on the white aspects of the church. And a lot of that has been calculated to deliberately minimize uh, the more di- the the impacts and the issues of more diverse populations uh, affected by Mormonism. Um, so the amount of scholarship about Joseph Smith, you know, sticking a rock in a hat and looking for buried treasure, is extensive. It fills entire books. Uh, the amount of research that has been done about uh, Native American populations from specifically Mormon scholars, uh, it pales in comparison, unfortunately. Okay. Um, uh, we've got an anonymous question next. It's, do Mormons leave the church? And if so, are they defellowshipped like ex-Jehovah's Witnesses are? Ah, that's a, that's a, that's a, another one of those multifaceted questions. Um, you can leave the church of your own volition uh, and you can just stop going. Uh, the, the, that's what I did. I stopped going as a teenager and it's only recently that I've you know, begun studying the church, uh, the history of the church. You can just leave uh, and that's cool. You're still counted on their record books. You're still technically a member that they count in their 16 million membership. Uh, but if you're not going, you're not attending, you're not giving them tithing, then what's the harm? Um, if you do something that requires discipline – the church has multiple levels that they will uh, utilize to punish you for it. Um, and that can be anything from like you have to come to church, but you don't get to take the sacrament or you don't get to pray in church uh, or something like that. Um, then the next level on that is disfellowshipping. You can be disfellowshipped for a, a period of time and only be refellowshipped after you go through a repentance process that the bishop puts out for you. Then there's excommunication. And excommunication is the highest level of punishment that the church can dole out. 
and that requires it's basically a theocratic tribunal where uh, 12 men get in a circle around you and they go through your sins and they read you your sins in your public statements and they, they talk about the damage that you have caused and how much you, you've hurt the Savior. Um, and they create a program that basically removes your membership and makes it so you have to go through basically becoming a new Mormon in order to be in good fellowship. The church has made a long history of excommunicating people who speak out about the church who are members. Um, and that's that's another issue as well, including scholars who write about Mormon history under the employee of the church. They've excommunicated a number of scholars uh, and historians. Um, but there's the, the church has a lot of uh, approaches to to punishing members. Now, if you just want to leave and you want your name removed from the records – uh, you get your name on the records when you're eight years old and you get baptized. In order to get your name off the records, you have to send a notarized letter with a lawyer's signature to the church offices, and then they get back to you in a few months' time with a notice that your record has been removed. It's a pain process. You can go to quitmormon.com, and uh, there's a portal that's set up to basically do that uh, to help you through that process. But it's a long and arduous process and hardly anybody does it in comparison to the people who just stopped going. The hardest one is getting temple marriages annulled uh, or dissolved uh, because temple ceilings in the church are like the ultimate thing. You, in order to get that to happen, you have to go through a multiple years long process of meeting with your stake president and so on and so forth. And finally get a letter that's signed by the first presidency themselves in order to get your temple marriage dissolved. Um, It's membership in the church. It's a cult. It's a cult. Okay. <laughs> have, have you been excommunicated yet? I have not been excommunicated. Oh. Yep. Well, do let us know if that happens. It's very oh, happily. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, Nisha asks, how did you come? And perhaps given everything we've heard, why did you choose to specialize in Mormon history of all fields? Um, yeah, I found Mormon history to be super interesting. Uh, you know, after I left the church, like a lot of Mormons can empathize with what I'm going to say here. You have to deprogram. And that's a case for a lot of people coming out of a lot of religions. You have to deprogram. You have to figure out who you are. You have to figure out what you've been told. You have to figure out what's truth and what's lies. You have to learn a whole lot. Um, and as I began researching Mormon history, I was also listening to a lot of atheist podcasts. And um, I, I I looked for a Mormon history podcast that told the story of Joseph Smith history uh, because I just wanted it in an easy to consume format that I could listen to while I was driving my truck, which is what I was doing for a living. It didn't exist. Uh, so I made it. And then I realized how much I enjoy Mormon history and the community, the very rich community that is academic Mormon history. Um, and I, I just kind of fell into this role and I enjoy it. It's, it's become my passion. Um, there's also the ancillary issue of all my family believes all of my friends believe in the church and I see how much damage the church causes. And I can't, I can't rest knowing that that damage is being inflicted on my friends and family without knowing that I'm trying to do something to stop that from happening to more people. The last question is from Tana again, who asks, how did Bryce get so handsome? <laughs> Eugenics. <laughs> I was born in Utah. Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay. I, and I, and the, the fact that <laughs> well, well, and the fact that Tanner finds me attractive, I think, says more about him than it does about me. But that's what <laughs> eugenics is, baby. 
Welcome to Utah Mormonism. <laughs> Should probably clarify that Tanner and Bryce know each other already. <laughs> That's true. Not if it's just... the Tanner I'm thinking anyway, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> if, not. If, if not, then, hey, hit me up, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> That was the Skeptics in the Pub online podcast. For more skeptical content, including information about future talks, please like us on Facebook, follow at SITP on Twitter, or head to our website at sitp.online, where you'll also find a link to all the ways you can get in touch with us, including our Discord server. Music in this episode was provided by Thula Bora and used with permission. Until next time, thanks for listening.